This is John McGuire, and you are listening to Pentimental on SyncBook Radio. Today, for part two of a long past episode number 17, we have joining us for a trialogue, musician and author, Mr. Neil Slade. Joining me as co-host is my dear brother and visual artist, Tom McGuire, the man responsible for 93% of the Pentimental poster art. I would encourage listeners to revisit part one of episode number 17 as well, which featured Dr. Kirby's surprise. I hope that this complimentary dialogue with Neil sheds further light on the mechanics of brain function and what it truly means to be your own metaprogrammer. Thanks again to my guest this week, and thank you for listening. Joining us today on Pentimental is Neil Slade. Neil is an independent researcher and author of several books on both the brain and human behavior, including The Book of Wands, Brain Tuning, Brain Magic, and his most recent, Tickle Your Amygdala. He has been interviewed on numerous alternative media outlets, including Coast AM and Thinking Aloud. Neil is also a lifelong musical composer as well as teacher, and utilizes the power of music in his practice to further activate both individual creativity and problem solving. Starting out, can you just give the audience a slightly more comprehensive description of your background and what your work entails generally? Sure, I'll make it brief. I graduated with a degree in music education here in Denver. I began private teaching and continuing my composing. But I wanted to see what I could do in terms of improving my creativity and how my brain worked. And one night I was watching PBS television here in Denver. And there was an interesting documentary about a fellow who ran a brain lab that was situated at 10,000 feet elevation in the Colorado wilderness. His name was T.D. Lingo. And uh, he invited me to come up. And I ended up spending the next 11 years at the Brain Lab. Uh, in a very short time, became his primary assistant, helping him with uh, educational programs and getting the information out to the general public. He died in 1993, and I pretty much took over his work at that point and have been doing uh, the educational programs and creating books for people to read, and building uh, my website, brainradar.com, to help people understand what they can do to turn on the infinite potential that resides inside each brain. So your work largely revolves around the amygdala, and from my reading of TD Lingo, he emphasized that especially, he talked about power positions of the amygdala and how we were able to be able to switch in and out of different brain states. Sure. And it seems like you've carried that work on, and so maybe you can explain to the audience a little bit about what that means. When people would come up to the, the brain lab, and he called it the dormant brain lab, for the reason being that there was a folk saying that you only use 10% of your brain and that 90% of your brain was dormant. Now, that's not literally true, but it does indicate that we have vast untapped potential within the human brain. We, nobody knows what the brain is actually capable of at this point. Sir John Eccles, a Nobel laureate, said, the powers of the human brain are infinite. So when people say that you only use 10% of your brain, that's not true. If they were to say use 1% of your brain, that wouldn't be true at all because any percentage of infinity is an infinitely small percentage. So you really can't put a number on it. In any case, that was what he decided to name his facility, the Dormant Brain Lab. And people would come uh, from all over the world and, and spend six weeks in what was called his brain and nature camp. And where the brain lab was located, there was no running water. There was no electricity. People roughed it. Uh, it was a, I mean, there were log cabins that Lingo had built over the years. And you can go on my website and actually see pictures of the brain lab and a little tour, a photo tour of the brain lab. But in any case, people would, from all over the country and, and occasionally from different parts of the world, would come and spend six weeks at the Brain and Nature Camp. And there would, they would learn all kinds of things, not just what the amygdala did, but they learned 
basic brain function. They learned what different parts of the brain did. They studied yoga and meditation. They studied neuroanatomy and brain physiology. They studied different methods of behavior modification. So people got a very well-rounded program. And so on my website and in my books, it's not just to focus on one thing, but it really takes in the whole operation of the brain. Now, that being said, I do focus on the way on this particular organ that you mentioned, the amygdala. And you have two amygdala, one for the right hemisphere and one for the left hemisphere because your brain is divided into a left half and a right half. And what, what we have found is by focusing on this particular part of the brain and how it's connected to all of the other parts of the brain, one can very quickly do some exercises and some meditations and some fun kind of brain games. And you can really see a very quick improvement in your creativity and in your intelligence and also in the amount of simple pleasure that you feel from day to day. And that is because the amygdala is in what is called the limbic system. And the limbic system, among other things, is the emotional part of the brain and is responsible for positive emotions, positive feelings. You know, when people take drugs to get high, what those drugs do is work with those neurotransmitters and neurocytes within the brain to activate feelings of pleasure. So what you can do is activate those areas of the brain without using drugs by simply doing some brain and behavior modification so that you can make those positive emotions kind of click on at will as opposed to having to be dependent upon a drug to do that. What exercises are useful to activate this emotional center? A lot of times we think, well, we have some amount of control of our abstract thought and our what's going on in our prefrontal cortex, but the reptilian brain, the mammalian brain always seem to be doing their own thing. Right. So how are you tapping into it? Well, you mentioned a couple of things right there, prefrontal cortex, mammal brain, uh, reptile brain. The first step in brain self-control, and that's kind of what I call it when people consciously manipulate how their brain is working. Most people go through their daily life without really thinking about what their brain is doing. They don't, they're completely unconscious about the types of brain functions that are occurring from moment to moment. So the first thing that you want to do when you decide you want to invoke brain self-control and take conscious control of all of these brain functions is to learn brain, brain basics. Learn what the rudimentary and fundamental functions are of the brain and what parts of the brain do what. So uh, we, can, we can spend a, a few moments and I can go through, you know, that kind of thing that people would learn. Now, we're going through, you know, we only have so much time on a radio interview. So I'd really encourage anyone who's listening to go to brainradar.com because there you'll find hundreds of pages and articles and movies and images so they can really get into it in depth. But we'll do a kind of, I'll do a brief overview of brain basics right now for anyone listening. I like to use, and Lingo also enjoyed using and found useful, Paul, Dr. Paul McLean's model of the human brain. And Paul McLean was a brain researcher that became very well known for his triune model of the brain. And when I say model of the brain, I'm saying, I'm, what I'm saying is this is a, a way of looking at the brain that is simplified. It's a holistic way of looking at the brain that takes all of the intricacies and tries to get it down to a very simple level so that you can understand it. So the triune brain, triune means three in one, tri, three, un, one, three in one. So the triune model of the brain divides the brain into three basic components. The innermost component of the brain is what he called the reptile brain or the R complex. And that's what your spine comes out of. The reptile brain is responsible for autonomic functions of the human body. It allows us to operate 
pretty much on the same level as a snake or reptile uh, with, without any social conscience or without any planning or any sophisticated thinking. But the reptile brain is, is kind of like the seeds of an apple. If you can think of the seeds of an apple, it's the innermost part of our brain. It computes what lingo fondly called eggs behavior, ego, greed, grab, suck. <laughs> the reptile brain is only concerned with the individual, with the self. It's not concerned with the welfare of other people. It's not concerned with, with the social network. It's just me, 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 consciousness. And there's a neurological joke that goes along with this. The reptile brain computes the four Fs of human behavior, feeding, fighting, fleeing, and reproduction. That's the joke, the four Fs. And it computes the fight or flight response. So, for example, if you perceive a threat in your environment, the reptile brain automatically clicks into high gear and it clicks into fight or flight response. So if you're walking down, say, a mountain trail and suddenly you spot a rattlesnake, you don't think about what to do. You just run in the opposite direction. Or if somebody's coming at you uh, with a baseball bat, you automatically get into fight response or you run like crazy. All right. So the reptile brain is, is purely automatic. There's no real thinking involved in the sense of what we regard as thinking. It's just automatic response. So that's like the seeds of an apple. It only makes up at most 10% of the brain, probably a little bit less than that of the entire volume of the brain. Now surrounding this inner core reptile brain, you have what's called the mammal brain. And that's kind of like the core of an apple around the seeds. It's another layer. And in the human brain, it's, all, it's, it's part of this division of right and left hemisphere. So you have a left mammal brain and a right mammal brain that's surrounding this inner core. And what the mammal brain does, or is also called paleomammalian brain, meaning old mammal brain, it adds on social behaviors and emotions. So now we have, instead of reptiles who... You know, they lay their eggs and split. Kids, you're on your own. There are exceptions to that. Like I said, this is just a model. But generally, reptiles just lay their eggs and then the young hatch and they go out and do their own thing without any rearing. Mammals, on the other hand, nurture their young and they raise their young into adulthood. Okay? So this type of behavior is computed somewhat in this mammal brain section of the brain. It also is responsible for our emotions. So when you feel happy or sad um, or uh, when you feel uh, uh, depressed or frustrated, these are much more complex types of brain functions. And the mammal brain portion of, the, of your brain is responsible for those types of emotions. Okay? So now we have a reptile brain surrounded by a mammal brain. Now, when you look at a human brain, most people think of this wrinkly gray part, you know, like Frankenstein's brain in a jar. What you're looking at is what McLean called the new mammal brain or the primate brain. And it makes up about 80, 85% of the human brain by volume. And it's what generally we think of when we see a brain. Now, this is a further development of all of the mammal brain tissues, and it adds on fine motor skills. It adds on uh, much more complex types of behaviors and thinking. And the, the most forward part of this primate brain, now if, you, if you're listening on the radio right now, take one of your hands and just cup it over the front of your forehead. Everything from your eyes forward is what's called the frontal lobe and the prefrontal cortex. We'll just call it the frontal lobes. This is the one-third most forward part of the human brain. And it's responsible for the most advanced brain functions, such as concepts of time, planning, imagination, cooperation. Whereas the reptile brain is only concerned with the self, the frontal lobes, along with the rest of the primate brain, is concerned 
with the global picture, everything outside oneself. There was an interesting study that was done years ago of prison inmates, and they divided the prison inmates into two categories. One was the normal prison inmate, and the other category was the prison inmates that were suffering from psychosis. Now, the regular inmates knew the difference between right and wrong, and they showed remorse for their criminal trespasses. They had a conscience, as it were. The other criminals that were put in the psychopathic category didn't have an understanding of the difference between right and wrong, didn't relate to their victims at all, and had no remorse whatsoever. It turns out when they, what this study did is they did brain scans of these two different prison populations, and they found that the psychotic criminals that could not relate to their victims had a malfunction in the frontal lobes, in the premedial cortex. That was it, that's in this division, this crack that goes through the, the front of the frontal lobes. That part of the brain was either damaged or was not functioning. Whereas the other inmates who could put themselves in the shoes of their victims, they had function in that part of their brain. So the frontal lobes is responsible for being in someone else's shoes, for empathy and sympathy. And this is very key to brain function, normal brain function and advanced brain function, is that you're able to get outside yourself and see what something is like from another perspective. As I said before, the reptile brain, this inner part, only computes me, me, me types of behaviors, whereas someone who's using their frontal lobes and the more advanced parts of the brain, they can think of everybody else. They can think myself plus everyone else. And that's, that's a very key function there. Uh, also, as I mentioned before, concepts of time, planning, imagination. These are all functions of the, of the frontal lobes. Now back to the amygdala. Your brain has an automatic emotional feedback system built into it. And the emo- your emotions will tell you if you're using a lot of your reptile brain and none of your frontal lobes, or it can tell you if you're using a lot of your frontal lobes and you have a balanced brain, and it does it through emotional feedback. And key in the structure of the brain are these two little amygdala switches. And they're about the size of the tip of your thumb. Amygdala comes from the word, uh, from the Greek word meaning nut, amygdala, almond, okay? It's not really shaped like an almond, but it's more, it's kind of a little bulbous kind of protrusion inside this mammal brain section. Now, what the amygdala does is it tells you through emotion which part of your brain is on. If you're feeling negative emotion, such as fear or panic or boredom at best, if you're just bored, okay, nothing is going on, your amygdala is telling you that your frontal lobes are turned off and most of the, you have enhanced processing of this reptile brain where there is no creativity going on, where there's no imagination going on, where there's no cooperation going on. Negative emotion in the amygdala tells you that. On the other hand, when you have positive emotions, that means that your frontal lobes are, there is enhanced activity in the frontal lobes. Pleasure is associated with creativity, intelligence, cooperation. It's very simple to think about that. Think about the last time you were, you were having a very positive experience, very positive emotions. You will be able to relate that to cooperative, imaginative, creative brain functions. So the amygdala is, is wonderful. It'll tell you any time of the day if you're clicked backwards into reptile brain or if you're tickled forward into your frontal lobes. Now, the nice thing about this is you can click or tickle your amygdala forward and consciously increase the amount of frontal lobes activities that you are experiencing. And in that way, you increase your productivity, your creativity, your imagination, 
your cooperation. Uh, there was a research study done at the end of the 90s and at the beginning of the of the new century done by Dr. Sarah Lazar uh, and also Herbert Benson, who wrote a very popular book called, oh gosh, what was the name of the book he wrote? Can't recall at this moment. But anyway, what they did is they did brain scans of people that were engaged in certain types of mental activities. And what the brain scans showed was that they consciously increased the amount of frontal lobes activity in their brain. And they also could spot amygdala activity occurring as well. So the idea that you can tickle your amygdala and turn on more of the most advanced parts of your brain at any given moment consciously, this is documented to be a physical reality. It's just not some crazy idea that Neil Slade or T.D. Lingo came up with. It's an actual reality about brain function that one can consciously guide the brain through imagination and through imaging and through meditation and you can consciously tickle this amygdala forward and turn on more of your brain potential. And instead of being stuck where the frontal lobes are turned off, you can turn on all of the vast potential of the human brain simply by focusing on it, on certain sections of the brain. Well, I'm particularly interested in the, in the creativity aspect of the amygdala and, and how it influences creativity. What is kind of the... To me, I'm, I'm trying to make the connection between how the amygdala switches on the prefrontal cortex, or is it vice versa? Does the, when you use the prefrontal cortex, does the amygdala start to, you know, kind of give a spark to it or, you know? Sure. Well, that's, that's kind of it. And I've thought about what you're saying. You know, is the amygdala turning on the frontal lobes or is the frontal lobes turning on the amygdala, clicking the amygdala forward? And I think it's kind of a chicken or the egg. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> kind of situation we don't know uh, what we do know is that the amygdala is connected to all of the, the brain and the reason is is because the amygdala functions as early brain radar as a sense that's why I called my brain my website brainradar.com the amygdala needs to know if there's a threat occurring in the environment and it's a shortcut to turn on the fight or flight response. So again, if you see a threat, if you see a snake in your path, you don't want to sit there and think about it. You want the fastest possible reaction to turn on the fight or flight and to turn on increased levels of adrenaline so that you can run away, to turn on, uh, you know, to make your heart rate go faster, to boost all of your sensory uh, abilities. So the amygdala is an automatic kind of switch when it senses the threat, it automatically clicks into this reptile brain. But what brain research has shown is that the, that's not the only function of the amygdala. The amygdala also automatically rewards advanced brain function. So if you engage higher amounts of cooperative behavior, the amygdala is connected to the frontal lobes and through this very complicated limbic system of emotions, if the amygdala is tickled forward, as it were, it automatically rewards the brain. Now, the reason for that is, is fairly simple and should be obvious. If your brain volume is only 10% of this reptilian fight-or-flight response, and the other 90% of your brain, or close to 90% of your brain volume is dedicated to more advanced processes, your survival is enhanced by the use of this primate brain and frontal lobes. Your ability to survive is going to be far greater if you're using all of your brain as opposed to if you're only using this reptilian part of your brain. So nature is smart. Mother nature is smart. Your brain is set up to reward creativity and intelligence and planning and these higher functions it wants you to use these advanced parts of your brain. It wants you to use the primate brain and the other 90% of your brain. So it gives you pleasure when you turn on creativity and problem solving. You can do far greater problem solving with your frontal lobes than you can do with your reptile brain. 
The reptile brain only computes what's going on in any given moment. It doesn't see past. It doesn't, it, you know, it's genetically programmed. It doesn't plan. It can't predict. It doesn't compute cause and effect like the frontal lobes, right? So it's very limited in its, its ability to problem solve. So Mother Nature gives you negative emotional feedback as a way to turn on the, on the reptile brain, but nothing more. It wants you to use all of your brain potential. So that's how, these emotion, this, that's how the emotional feedback is wired up in your brain. You know, nobody wants to be stuck in fear and paranoia or boredom, right? That's no fun, right? So you're not going to be rewarded for that limited types of brain function, but you are going to be rewarded for advanced brain function because it's better for your survival in the case of humans. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. It's it's kind of like a built-in dog training, kind of like yeah, clicker like having... training with dogs built into your brain. Yeah, that's right. And and we know that positive reinforcement works far better for training animals than negative mm. reinforcement. So you are your own dog in that sense. <laughs> your your you own know? dog and your own dog trainer. That, exactly right. <laughs> that's right. But it's it's beautiful because once you become aware of this emotional feedback system and the amygdala, any given moment, your brain will tell you: Are you only using ten percent of your brain? Are you are you bored? Do you feel fear? Are you paranoid? Uh, do you want to fight? Well, if you're feeling that, you're not using your front. You're not fulfilling your full potential. On the other hand, when you're feeling happy and that things are going right, your frontal lobes are turned on. So you want to turn on more of that because who doesn't want to feel happy most of the time? Yeah. And I have a creative career. So, you know, most of the time when you're relaxed and you have a lot of time, you're able to be more creative than when you're obviously stressed and under stress of time or under stress of threat. Yeah. Um, so that that'll make sense. Well, I did an interesting, uh, a little bit of research a couple of years ago, and I did build a website around it. It's called Music for ESP, and you can spell four with just the letter four. Music for ESP. And what we did is we gave some uh, music to 75 volunteers, and these volunteers were covered all kinds of occupations. I, they were ages 10 through 82, I believe, it's close to that, covered the whole gamut of ages and occupations and men and women were equally divided. And I simply said, get in the bathtub or turn out the lights and turn on, uh, listen to this piece of music. And I supplied them with specific types of music because I wanted to gauge how different kinds of music affected their mental states. And the results were that about 77% 75 or 77% of the people experienced heightened creativity and pleasure and people reported a gamut of paranormal types of perceptions simply by listening to music, engaging in a pleasurable activity. And people can go to that Music for ESP website and do that experiment for themselves. And what I found is that Music in particular is a great way to increase your creativity and your productivity. If I'm engaged in some sort of project, many times, more often than not, I'll have something playing in the background to kind of supercharge that creative aspect of my brain. Or another thing you can do is engage in some type of humor or comedy. We have a great comedy radio station here in Denver. That will do very similar things to listening to certain types of music. And the reason is, is because the perception of humor engages the frontal lobes. When you are told a joke and when you understand a joke and laugh, that requires that your frontal lobes are engaged. In the past, people who have had frontal lobotomies, where their frontal lobes are physically disconnected from the rest of their brain, they lose their sense of humor. Because sense of humor requires an understanding of cause and effect and planning, or you don't get the joke. Humor is when you expect one thing, 
and something else happens, right? Well, this is strictly a frontal lobes process. So by listening to something funny, that will also help increase your intelligence and creativity and these, all these advanced brain functions. When you tickle your amygdala, when you consciously click your amygdala forward, and I can teach everyone an exercise, a very simple exercise to do that, and I'll do that in a moment. It's kind of like turning the starter motor on your car. It's a catalyst. It's like turning the key. And, and what the starter motor does, it, it, makes, it physically gets the engine started uh, by turning the crankshaft, and then the engine itself takes over the process of going. So when you do any of these amygdala tickling or amygdala clicking types of exercises, it's like turning on the starter motor. just gets things started, and then once you get the frontal lobes cranking, they take over on their own. Well, a quick observation about music and something I've noticed with the music I enjoy when, when I'm in a certain kind of artistic flow. I have trouble listening to music with lyrics in it. Uh, lyrics for me seem to interfere with the process. I don't know if that is uh, a common thing. Or Do you have any thoughts about what type of music is best and what works for you, or is it a very subjective yeah, thing? I understand what you're saying about lyrics as well. You know, not all music will click you, click you into your frontal lobe. Not all music will tickle your amygdala. It largely depends upon the individual. But I would say the reason that, you're, that you can't listen to lyrical music while you're engaged in a creative process is because the lyric music will engage your left hemisphere. Now, language is computed in different parts of the brain, but there are two areas in the human brain called Wernick's area and Broca's area. These are both on the left hemisphere. And language is computed through these two areas largely in the left hemisphere of the brain. Okay? So if you're listening to music with lyrics and you're trying to be creative, your brain is occupied by these lyrics and you can't think in a linear fashion. It's like having something in your right hand and left hand at the same time. You need at least one hand free, as it were, okay? <laughs> so when you're listening to instrumental music, that allows your brain, your left brain to function in a normal or in an enhanced fashion. There was an interesting study that began, I believe this was in Bulgaria back in the 50s, and it was imported into the United States and into Europe, and it was called super learning. And what they discovered was that if people were trying to learn a language or trying to do math, left brain types of activities, they could greatly enhance their, their learning ability by listening to certain types of instrumental music. What they found is that if they listened to classical music that was going at 60 beats per minute, typically the Largo or the Andante section of a symphony or a sonata, that would greatly increase their ability to learn new information. Now, if music was faster than that or contained lyrics, that wouldn't do the same thing. So part of the Music for ESP study uh, involved different types of music, and we wanted to see you know, what music worked in terms of turning on advanced brain functions and what kinds of music didn't work. And so you can go to the site and you can read the comments by the study participants and you can actually do that yourself. But I understand completely what you're saying in terms of uh, lyrical music interfering with that creative process. And that may be uh, what, what I mentioned may be part of the explanation as to why that is so. Neil, I want to uh, get a question in about uh, the pineal gland, seeing as how you're a brain expert. Is there any link between the pineal gland and the amygdala, or what are your thoughts on the pineal yeah, gland in general? pineal gland is responsible for uh, hormone production. It becomes active when it, per it perceives light. Light will cause increase an increase in pineal gland activity. It helps us to wake up. I'm not quite sure about this, but I think melatonin is involved in the pineal gland, and when melatonin is secreted by the brain, then we feel sleepy and go to sleep. 
the pineal gland is also seems to be responsible for the production of dimethyltryptamine within the human brain. And that's a very powerful uh, dimethyltryptamine, also known as DMT, is, a, is the strongest hallucinogen that we know of. And it occurs naturally within the human brain, but uh, it also can be manufactured. And when people take small amounts of DMT, they experience a very high level of imaginative fantasy-like uh, hallucinations and imagery within the brain. So it may be responsible for in connection with dream states because of the pineal gland activity at night, and DMT production within the at night is is heightened. Some people relate it to the yogic system of chakras, the highest chakra state being the crown chakra. And the pineal gland is actually located in the mid, in the mid higher portion of the brain. We're talking inside the limbic system, so it's still in this center part of the brain, but it's slightly higher up than the amygdala. So there seems to be, at least in religious terms, people make the connection between the pineal gland and enlightenment. But I don't know that there is any scientific research that that really provides any kind of backup to that so at least the amygdala we we pretty much know that it will it is connected to increases in reptilian brain processes and it's related to increases in frontal lobe processes so my focus and at the brain lab has been you know on this amygdala organ because it seems to be a really a key master switch in regards to some very important brain functional aspects, whereas the pineal gland doesn't seem to be nearly as important in in that role. Yeah, I'm trying to make the distinction between inner vision and uh, everyday creativity, you know, useful creativity. And to me, I kind of see the pineal gland as, as a starting point for inner vision, whereas the amygdala is for more Well, when you're talking about imaging and imagination and internal visual concepts, that has little, if anything, to do with the pineal gland. Okay. Uh, Imagination and, and you know, the third eye is your forehead. That happens to be right where your frontal lobes are. So the idea, you know, of, of having imagery in your brain, abstract imagery, that involves the frontal lobes and will involve somewhat the occipital lobes, which is in the back portion of your primate brain. There's two lobes that sit at the back portion of the brain, and they kind of look look like two balls of yarn, two small balls of yarn. And they're responsible for computing visual uh, activity and visual sensation. They're in the rear portion, sitting just above you know, it, you've got two little bumps if you reach back with your hand and your skull has two little ridges in the back. Your occipital lobes are located in that area and they're going to be involved somewhat in visual activity as are the frontal lobes in imaging and imagination. So the, the, the pineal gland really doesn't have a, isn't, isn't really related to that except for the release of this dimethyltryptamine which may be involved in imagery that occurs during dreaming, and DMT may be somewhat involved in this abstract imagery that happens in your imagination. But besides that, there's no real, there there doesn't seem to be any evidence that it's involved in the imaginative imagery process. So, Neil, your work if I'm going to put it in a continuum, for me personally, has always fit into the Dr. John Lilly, Robert Anton Wilson, Tim Leary, and then, of course, the general mainstream movement towards neuroplastic research and how we can rewire our brains to overcome all sorts of tribulations or things that medical science once said were incurable. In fact, it's it's rather empowering, and you're one of the grassroots supporters of that, of that strain of psychology. And I wonder if you were ever inspired by their work beyond the work you did in Denver. Sure. No, I am, I am familiar with 
all of those people. Uh, Lily is primarily known, at least from what I know of him, for his work with dolphins and with his work with the uh, isolation floating chambers. Yeah. What do they call those? Float tanks. Float tanks, right, where if someone doesn't know what those are, it would be a something like a big coffin filled with saline water and isolated. There was you you get into this thing and you'd spend a certain amount of time in this chamber where there were no lights, there was no sound, and the tactile stimulation was kept to a minimum. And the idea was to see what would the brain do on its own when there was no outside stimulation supplied. And that's one of the main things that Lily was known for. So I am familiar with that. And I have done some of that uh, isolation tank. We used to have a place here in Denver where you could go in and you could float in an isolation tank. My experience was that it wasn't that great of a thing. I didn't feel as though I was getting any great insights from it. And perhaps if I had done it for eight hours at a time, I might have had some different reactions. But, you know, who wants to sit in a tank for eight hours a day? Um, For me, it was much more effective to tickle my amygdala and get instant results that I could immediately relate to. Robert Anton Wilson, uh, he kind of knew a lot of people and was a philosopher and a writer and really encapsulated a lot of things. Timothy Leary, of course, we all know, maybe he took the exact opposite approach uh, from Lilly is that he provided his brain with great stimulation through the ingestion of uh, hallucinogens. And again, I've had some experience in, in, in that as well. The problem with being dependent or using chemicals is eventually they wear off and you're back to using your brain in its natural state. And I, w- I wouldn't say anything negative about either of these activities, either isolation shank or the use of uh, you know certain types of herbs or drugs to uh, bring about changes in consciousness and, and so on. But I like the idea that your brain is the most powerful, complex thing we know of in the universe. And you're walking around that 24-7. Use it. You're walking around with 200 billion neurons the number of connections that your your brain can make is equivalent to the number of stars in the known universe. It's equivalent uh, to the grains of sand on the planet Earth. So you're walking around with the most complex thing that we know of in the universe that you're, is accessible 24 hours a day. Start using that. It doesn't cost you anything. It's not illegal. You know, it's where all of these other ideas were generated from in the first place. The idea of an isolation tank was was thought up thought up by a human brain. The manufacture and use of hallucinogenic chemicals was thought up in the human brain. Why not just use the human brain and accomplish what you're what you'd like to set out to accomplish? So Neil, I want to make sure we get back to uh exercises for tickling the amygdala but I, oh sure I, while we're on this topic i wanted to ask you about the brain a theory of the brain is a receiver for outside signals that may be unconscious not not necessarily tied to our sense organs you know i've heard several theories about this but what are your thoughts on that as far as being a, a receiver of information that is is not necessarily within our, our sure sense? well what you're talking about is paranormal types of perception sure yeah. yes you're talking about precognition, you're talking about telepathy, you're talking about even telekinesis, that sort of thing. Being sensitive to information for which there is no immediate physical route. And again, pointing to the music for ESP experiment, show that people would spontaneously experience these paranormal sensitivities without trying. And that's been my experience through the years, is that when you try to make these types of things happen, when you try to turn on your telepathy, when you try to see into the future, uh, when you try to move a pencil across the desk, there's some sort of built-in governor system 
that uh, you may be able to do once in a while, but you can't really depend on, upon it. But when you have your amygdala clicked forward and when you stay in a state in which you're staying out of fear and negative emotions, when you have the frontal lobes engaged, these types of perceptions spontaneously occur on their own. They seem to happen when you need it. My experience over the years is that, let me think of a, of a good example. Oh, here's a good example that I just used yesterday. I just retiled my bathroom cabinet, but I needed some grout, and I didn't know whether or not to use the, there's a, you can get kind of a acrylic filler, like a, a caulk, or to use grout to do this. So I finished it, and I took my dogs for a walk, and we have alleys in our neighborhood, and I decided, well, let's just go for the heck of it. Let's take this alley. Well, somebody had put outside by their garage, and, and people do this in the neighborhood. When you don't need something, you put it in the alley, you put it next to your garage door, you put it next to your trash can. Somebody had put out a quart of grout for the taking, and there it was. So I needed something, and my intuition led me to walk down this particular path, and I found exactly what I needed. This happens all the time to me, where if I'm staying clicked into my frontal lobes, I, I perceive things that I need, that are useful to me. So I don't try to turn on these paranormal perceptions. I don't try to turn on the telepathy or the ESP. They just spontaneously happen as I need them. They're a higher function of the normal frontal lobes behavior. Precognition is when you know something is going to happen before it happens, all right? You can kind of imagine something happening in the future, all right? And that using your imagination is a frontal lobes process. But when you actually know and then it's verified that you knew something, you know, when you, when you see something happening and then it comes to pass, that's precognition. You can imagine what somebody else is thinking, right? But when you know what someone else is thinking, right, and you verify that, oh, yes, that's exactly what I was thinking, so say this person, and it's verified, that's telepathy. So in terms of accessing all of these types of remote viewing or telepathy or precognition or, you know, those types of functions, my experience is just stay tickled forward. Just keep your frontal lobes turned on, and those things will happen as they need to happen, as opposed to trying to do a parlor trick, uh, you know, to impress your friends that you can know what they're thinking or predict what card you're going to pick after you cut the deck, that sort of thing. And for me, this sort of work represents the intersection of what was once considered magic and now what is actually on the cutting edge of neuroscience. And it occupies this middle ground. And you've even found a way to present it that way, like with your book, say, The Book of Wands, where I think your basic premise is whatever your wand is, it's how you project your prefrontal cortex into the world and how you are sort of a wizard in you know this <laughs> sort of very down-to-earth way. And I wonder what your thoughts on that are, connecting sort of the antique premise and the newer premise of what all this represents. Sure. The Book of Wands came about because of the, honestly, the great popularity of Harry Potter and how that took over the, the literary world at such a fantastic rate. And I was thinking, well, what if we were to talk about real magical powers? What if we were to talk about real unusual tools that you use to travel from one universe to another or to make things happen that normally wouldn't happen on their own without the intervention of a magical device or a tool or a wand. And so I started to reflect back on my experiences at the Brain Lab and the experiences that I've had teaching uh, brain self-control for the past 35 years. And it ended up being a 1,100-page, four-volume set, which I called the Book of Wands. 
And the reason I called it that was because I began to examine all of the ways that I used devices, tools, as it were. And I explain what a wand is, being an unusual tool. A wand isn't, isn't necessarily just a stick, a baton that you point and you go hocus pocus. A wand is any object that you use in an unconventional manner to manipulate the universe and to travel from one point to another. And so that's, that's what the Book of Wands is. And it's a, it's a really fun book because it has all of the stories and experiences that I've had in the past 35 years in terms of integrating brain self-control with the use of tools. A computer keyboard can be a wand. A guitar or any musical instrument can be a wand. A pencil can be a wand. And normally we look at these kinds of objects as having a normal function. Well, you write with a pencil. An umbrella is, a, is another one. You can use an umbrella to keep the rain off of your head, but you can also use an umbrella in an unusual way to tap into the universe in an unconventional manner. There's a story in the Book of Wands how an umbrella was used to find a bicycle for one of my students, and I explain how we use that particular umbrella to tap into the universal energy system. I don't know what to call it to locate a bicycle. And as it turns out, 10 minutes later, we went out and we located a free bicycle and we didn't steal it. <laughs> he was going to Burning Man. He says, I need a bicycle to take to Burning Man. And I don't want to take my good bicycle because there's a lot of sand and dust and I don't want to get, I just want a bicycle that I can take out into the desert and ride around and not worry about it. So I says, well, come on over. We'll find you one. You know, he was going to buy something on Craigslist. I said, no, 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 don't do that. Come over. We'll find one for you in 10 minutes. So he came over, and we got out the umbrella, and we used the umbrella kind of like a radar dish, right? So we took the umbrella, and we inverted it, and we held it as if it were a radar dish, and we swept the area. I said, okay, we've got signals, all right? The signals have gone into our subconscious. Let's get in the car and start cruising the alleys. So we got in the car. Two blocks from my house, we ran across this guy, and he was in his garage, and he was building this very strange, it looked like a caterpillar, looked like a big caterpillar that you could sit on. It was like 15 feet long, and it made up these segments, and we just stopped, and we said, oh, what are you building? He says, well, I'm going to Burning Man. That's what this guy says. I'm going to Burning Man, and this is my artwork that I'm taking to Burning Man. And Bobby said, oh, I'm going to Burning Man, too. And I said, we're out here looking for a bicycle for me to take to Burning Man. He says, oh, well, I've got one for you. Come on into my garage. Come, come over into this room, and I'll give you this bicycle. So within 10 minutes of using our umbrella, right, and clicking into this universal energy system, and it was all being done on this primarily on a subconscious level. We didn't know that we didn't know this guy had a bicycle. We didn't know that he was going to Burning Man. We just were put in the right place at the right time. And it was because we tickled our amygdala and we used a, an umbrella as an unusual tool. We clicked on our this very strange level of creativity to be in the right place at the right time to get what we needed at that moment. And that's what this is, that's what this is all about. So, yeah, I mean, you can use tools like umbrellas and watches and keyboards, and you can use them in a very unusual and unconventional man manner to tap into this part of so, the brain that allows you to find what you need and to be in the right place at the right time. Or you can just use your brain alone to do that. So there's a lot of different ways to engage your frontal lobes and to engage your amygdala. You'd ask me for an easy exercise. Here's the easiest one of all to tickle your amygdala. Imagine you've got a feather, okay? Some people have to close their eyes to imagine stuff. I don't. I can, I can see anything with my eyes wide open. I can imagine any type of thing. Some people may need to close their eyes. But imagine you've got a feather, and you're holding the feather in your right hand. Now, your amygdala is located halfway between your, the back of your eyeball and your inner ear. 
if you were to put your middle index finger in the side corner, outside corner of your eye, and then stick your thumb in your ear, and then drape your index finger onto your skull, and just bring it down a little bit, and then point. That's where your amygdala is. And you can, you can actually see an amygdala and the location if you go to the website, brainradar.com, and there's a, there's a link that says find your amygdala here. You can actually see where the amygdala is. All right, so it's, but it's roughly one inch inside each temple, and knowing approximately where it is is good enough. You don't have to know exactly. Just think one inch inside your right temple, and there's one on right, one inch inside your left temple. That's your amygdala. Imagine you have a feather, and with the tip of your feather, you're going to tickle the front part of your amygdala. So just reach in there with the tip of the feather and go tickle, 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 tickle on the right side. And then with the tip of the feather, reach in to the front of your left amygdala and go tickle, 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 right? only takes two seconds. You image the amygdala, you image a feather, and you tickle your amygdala. It's that simple. And you do it, you tickle your amygdala anytime you think of it. You don't have to do it all day long. You don't have to do it for an hour. It only takes a few moments. And by imagining that feather and imagining the tickle, that automatically causes an increase of frontal lobes processes. To use your imagination turns on your frontal lobes. Or your, your frontal lobes turn on your imagination. It's one and the same thing. Just imagining that feather, imagining the amygdala, and then imagining ticklet, that by itself causes a, a, it's like the catalyst to turn on your frontal lobes. That gets your frontal lobes gears turning. And then once they're going, they will continue going on their own for, for some time. You know, I mean, you can do it while you're waiting in line at the grocery store. You can do it while you're uh, walking your dogs. You can do it while you're cleaning your kitchen. You can do this anytime, any place. You don't need any equipment. All you need is your imagination to turn on more of your frontal lobes. Once you get that going, then all kinds of things will start to happen. You'll get the spontaneous paranormal perception happening. You'll get the creativity happening. Your imagination will ramp up. Your level of cooperation, you know, two brains are better than one, ten brains are better than one. You get all of that stuff going simply because you, you use that key to turn on your frontal lobes, and the key being the amygdala and tickling that amygdala to click forward instead of being clicked backward into boredom and reptile brain fight or flight. Neil, we're over an hour now. So why don't you just give the audience a quick what to look out for in the future if you're writing any more books or going to appear anywhere else? You know, right now I'm working on continuing some music projects. So people go to the website. First of all, if you go to brainradar.com, you easily you can spend a month going through all of the articles and, and web pages. Last count, there was, there was over 2,000 URLs. So it, it amounts to hundreds of articles about brain self-control and about the brain lab. I just put some uh, old, the secret lost papers of TV lingo. I begin putting them on, online. And there's a link to the Dormant Brain Lab on my main page there. Start out just by going to the website. There's just tons and tons of things that you can enjoy. Um, it doesn't cost you a thing. You can explore it like a big candy store. And I'm, I'm continually updating that site with more content. You can go to the Music for ESP website. My dogs, as you heard occasionally, have their own website. <laughs> it's strictly for entertainment and fun, but that's com, And there's links to their website on mine. Or you can just type in Urfi, E-R-F-I-E, on Google. And I think my dog is the number one Urfi on the planet. <laughs> and so there's that site. Uh, so lo- lots, of, lots of things from the web- website. And I'm working on some new music production and new brain music. And uh, we have a new video. I have, I think, 60 videos on YouTube right now. If you go to YouTube slash Neil Slade, that's my channel, N-E-I-L-S-L-A-D-E, N-E-I-L-S-L-A-D-E, YouTube slash Neil Slade. And there's a, there's a lot of videos of all different types. There's some lectures. There's music. There's some funny videos. The last video I put up was by that I did with two of my music students called I Like to Eat. 
And uh, what we did, it was an English adaptation of a Japanese pop song. And it's strictly entertainment, but the main thing is it'll tickle your amygdala. It'll get you at least momentarily into your frontal lobes, and it'll put a smile on your face. So I'm developing material that will immediately click people forward into their frontal lobes uh, without trying. They'll just, they can watch or listen to some music and be clicked into their frontal lobes in the manner that we did on the music for ESP site. So just look for new music and video, and all that stuff will be on YouTube slash Neil Slade. Neil, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, this was a pleasure, and I, I hope people will uh, find the information useful, and I hope they uh, check out the website and the YouTube site. Thanks, Neil. Thank you for listening to this broadcast from SyncBook Radio. If you enjoyed this episode, there's so much more content waiting for you at thesyncbook.com. Our newest episodes are always free, and members get access to our full archive of over 600 hours. You'll find all of this, as well as our books and videos, at thesyncbook.com.